Welcome. 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 You're listening to Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Built by Us. Now that it's February, we are ready to talk about Black History Month. While we know that Black history is made every day, as part of our acknowledgement with Black History Month and our organization's commitment to equity, including fostering discussions on race, all of our episodes of Built by Us this month will be specifically highlighting Black movement makers here in North Carolina. Just to kick Black History Month off, we actually wanted to make an episode around Martin Luther King. And this year, and in the past few years, actually, I've been seeing, I don't know if you have too, Taylor, but I've been seeing a lot of great conversations on social media about how Martin Luther King's day and words are often misused and misspoken. And so we just thought that we'd go back in history to the basics and listen directly to his words. And so today we're going to be reading the letter from Birmingham jail. And I'm pretty sure I've actually never read this letter. And I've seen so many people posting it recently lately, and I've been learning a lot more about it. So I'm excited to dive more into it in this episode. But it's like surprising to me that some of Martin Luther King's most famous words, I like didn't remember reading this in school or something like that. Same. Um, When I went to go pull up a PDF of the letter for us to prepare for this, I was shocked to see that it was 10 pages long. And I think, I mean, I know that that's because I realized that I have never read the letter itself. And I'm surprised because you would think that we would have in school specifically, and that's what you said. Like, I just would have thought that during an MLK day, at any point in our public school education, we would have read this. So I'm mostly just like, what the heck? What is what does that say about our, um, you know, our curriculum? And we've had conversations on this podcast before, but the whitewashing of our public education is so clear when we, when you know, when I experience things like this. That oh yeah, I know that some when I read this, I noticed some of these quotes. Like I've seen these quotes before, but they're pulled out of this long letter that helps you understand all the context around why he was in jail and who he's writing to um you know because I'm just like oh I guess it's an open letter and yes it was an open letter but he was talking to the clergy of Alabama and that means something you know in and of itself so yes I'm glad to finally have read it now (laughs) and um still frustrated that it's not something that I was more knowledgeable about before Today, the way we're actually going to be reading this letter is Taylor and I have gone through and read it ourselves, and we've pulled out some quotes from it that we think are really important and really stood out to us. And so we're actually going to be listening to an audio version of the letter from Birmingham Jail today, actually read by Martin Luther King himself. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So that is probably one of his most famous quotes. We- a fan fave. <laughs> we hear that all the time we see it all the time 
Um, and again, going back to what we just talked about, like this is one of the most famous quotes like ever. And I wouldn't have been able to tell you where it was from like back when I was in high school or something like, like that. So just again, thinking about how popular this quote is and it's just early on in this letter and I still didn't even know that it was from here. And it's so iconic. Yeah. And I think that, you know, he uses this to then talk about how, you know, no no one who lives in the U.S. should be considered an outsider. Um, and I think that that's an important like link that he's making because I think a lot of times it can be used in like a global concept you Mm -hmm. know and has sometimes been like a defense for why the U.S. sticks itself in other situations globally Um, but the fact that he's talking about it in actually in defense of himself even being in Alabama because that was one of the things that I guess clergy was not happy with that he came down and started all these demonstrations and was disrupting whatever in Alabama. And so just knowing that he's talking about how anyone who lives here deserves justice. And that means that it's people of all races, but then it also makes me think about issues today with immigration. Like you don't have to be, he doesn't say citizen, like you don't have to be a U.S. citizen, just living here and contributing to our society in that way should be enough for you to be treated with justice. Yeah. This next quote we're going to hear is actually really relevant to me too. I think it it kind of ties into this and then also just paints a picture of what we're kind of dealing with today. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I'm sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I'm sure that none of you would want to rest content with a superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations have taken place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. So Alyssa was saying that this quote feels relevant to today and it feels relevant to every time there is some sort of Black Lives Matter protest. You know, it brings me back to all the physical protests this summer or Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. You know, Mm -hmm. those were two different types of protests and no matter what, whoever's in opposition to racial justice and equity says that that's not the right way to protest. And I'm sure you've heard these conversations before. listeners but there is you know this this quote-unquote right way to protest and there's never going to be a right way someone's always going to be mad because they don't want to give away their power or give away their oppressive power really you know yeah and when I think about when I think about a protest the whole point of people protesting is because they want to be heard. They want you to hear what they're saying. And I feel like a lot of times today when people look at Black Lives Matters protests, they look at the protests and they still don't listen to any of the words that they're saying while they're out there marching and standing together and protesting. And so it's just when I look in the quote and it's like you never you never look into any kind of social analysis to see what's actually going on. Like why are these people upset? Why are they protesting? Why do they deserve this? Why like you 
need to have deeper social analysis to understand what's going on. And I, people always say we've come so far. And then I read a quote like this and I'm like, (laughs) have we? It feels the same. (laughs) Yeah. And exactly. I mean, not looking at the quote underlying causes and people just having a knee jerk reaction saying like, having the conversation around the right way to protest is a great way to ignore the underlying causes, right? So just get mad about the way that it's happening and not get mad about why everyone is so upset. (laughs) And that's such a, (laughs) exactly deflection. And like, you know, people being upset, it feels like not a strong enough word, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Another section that was really interesting to me when I was reading it was the part where Martin Luther King kind of talks about how we can't wait for laws to change for us. We need to be the ones to change them. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really important. And also just kind of, I noticed a, a distinguishment there between just and unjust laws. Like just because a law is a law doesn't mean that we need to obey it. Yeah. You talking about it just made me think of... Amanda Gorman, the the poet at inauguration, she put this really well. She said, the notions of what just is, isn't always justice. And things may be a certain way, but we shouldn't be, or maybe not just be okay with it because a lot of us aren't, right? We shouldn't sit and hope and wait and not fight for what is actually right. Yeah. I I think this is actually interesting. I actually had a conversation about this recently, just like the way that people understand laws to be so definite in like just as a truth is like really interesting to me. I had a conversation with someone recently who was like, the only I just hate that like nowadays people just want to put so much opinion into law. And I was like, what the <laughs> whole what do you how do we separate? them and I just I just thought hearing somebody even say that I was like people really think in ways that like laws are like the rules of the universe and like I just think that's so interesting that people are still thinking in that mindset mindset in that perspective and that there can only be one truth yeah mm-hmm. yeah I mean it's obviously an easier way to live your life <laughs> to not constantly be interrogating everything but, but at what cost? <laughs> <laughs> but you saying that actually made me think of um, someone else in my life who, um, when uh, when I have uh, conversations around race with this person, they think that because anti discrimination laws exist and are on the books, that that's enough and everything is actually fine. Like. Racism doesn't exist because there are anti-discrimination laws. Like, yeah, you're not allowed to be racist legally. So like it's it ain't there. And that blows my mind because (laughs) then how do you how is how is everything bad happening? If Like, how do you explain anything (laughs) that has a law (laughs) ever? Yeah. And it's just again, you have to interrogate people like there are people out there who don't follow the law or it's really easy to find a loophole or skirt around it. For example, like super baseline, you know, fire someone because you don't like, you know, their race or their sexuality, for example. That happens every day. Just because we have anti-discrimination laws doesn't stop that from happening. 
that's another thing people people decide like what is just in an unjust law based on how it affects them mm-hmm. and like that's another one of the big problems like when I think about white people not understanding the, the concept of an unjust law it's like okay because most laws don't unjustly affect you mm-hmm. and it just keeps coming back to that mm-hmm. <laughs> we just bring it around but then he goes on to give a couple explanations of just versus unjust laws so let's hear really quickly um one of my favorite explanations let me give another explanation a law is unjust if it is inflicted on a minority that as a result of being denied the right to vote had no part in enacting or devising the law who can say that the legislature of alabama which set up that state segregation laws was democratically elected. Throughout Alabama, all sorts of devious methods are used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. And there are some counties in which even though Negroes constitute a majority of the population, not a single Negro is registered. Can any law enacted under such circumstances be considered democratically structured? So, as you might have guessed, I said this was my favorite explanation because it's about voting rights. <laughs> and um, it's the one, one section in this letter where MLK specifically mentions how there are unjust voting laws because whether it's the law on its face or the application of that law, it can suppress the vote and create barriers for certain people to not be able to raise their voice in that way. So he mentions like registration specifically, right? You know, they obviously can't vote. So it's like thinking about how registration is already a step that we at DEMNC have to fight for ways to make registration easier. Um, And then showing up to the polls in his time, there was massive violence against Black folks going to vote in person and just showing up was a barrier um, for fear of that. And so the list goes on and on about voter suppression because we've, you know, we've talked about all the different tactics, whether it's outright or administrative. And I think it's just one of the other quotes that we see where this is still something that we're fighting about today. And how can elected officials who were not elected by the majority of the population, right? We have officials who are elected by the majority of people who voted. Yeah. But think about how that's, it's such a, it's so different. Um, You know, for this presidential election, we had the biggest turnout rate ever. I think about half the states had over 50% turnout, but the norm kind of is 50% turnout of people who are able to vote. And so, you know, that's just such a big thing for me. Obviously I want everyone to vote, but People have their reasons for why they don't, and I'm not going to tell them that they're wrong because a lot of that comes from history of trauma and either knowing that people don't, there are people that don't want them to vote, people that will try very hard to hurt them if they try to do that, um, or their government not actually working for them ever. So they're like, what's the friggin' point? So, yeah. And I mean, I think again, it ties directly back to this quote like, a law is unjust if it's inflicted on people that didn't have the right to create it in the first place and that was the entire foundation of our society and so I completely understand if black and indigenous people of color are like you know what I don't want to vote 
for a system that was already created without my voice in the first place. They didn't care then and they still don't care now. And so I'm not going to. And I understand why, because our foundation is built on that truth. Yep, Uh, exactly. So (laughs) this also makes me think of a like a the recording of a play that I watched um, and it's called What the Constitution Means to Me. And it's like a one woman play where this woman um, it, she's kind of reenacting these like debates that she did as a child where she talks about the Constitution. Apparently that was a thing in a way for kids to get scholarships to college back in the day. <laughs> and she's talking through how she used to see the Constitution and how she sees it now as an adult. And for her specifically, she has a lot of um, history of domestic violence in her family. And so she's thinking about that now as an adult and you know at the end of the play she comes she comes to the realization with the audience with most of the audience that the constitution needs to be redone um (laughs) and you know the the main basis of that is because the people who created there were only a certain type of people who created it and yes people other than that have been kind of added in through amendments but it's not the same thing. It's not. Yeah. So, that tangent. <laughs> That's actually really interesting to think about, like, how I thought about the Constitution as a kid versus how I thought about it now. Like, even that is an interesting thing to think about. <laughs> I really liked it. And it was funny. The Constitution, that is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So with all the tangents that we could go on, let's let's not. But so as this is listenable to everybody. So the last quote that I want to hear is a quote that I'd seen shared more this MLK day than in years past. And it is him discussing his disappointment with the white moderate. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must, must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you and the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises a Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering an outright rejection. Black squares, this quote's for you. (laughs) I'm sure all of us saw our timelines fill with random black squares on Blackout Tuesday this past summer. And 
this quote definitely made me think of that event and how many white people I saw post that black square, but I have never seen do anything to support, uplift, donate to black people, black and indigenous people of color, anything like that. And so this quote, that was just the first thing that came into my mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know this quote is so important, especially now, because I, I believe that this resonates with more white people currently, you know, than unfortunately when this was written like 70 years ago. But it's obviously it's... Yes, it is still true and more people need to be receptive of hearing it. It is so easy for white folks to, again, deflect and just say, oh, I'm not racist because I'm I'm not a Ku Klux Klaner. And if that is your baseline, that is rough for one. But the we've talked about this before, the more insidious part of racism is the non-overt, the undercutting, the day-to-day harm that is put on people of color because we as white people find it more convenient to not interrogate ourselves and look within ourselves and fix that part of us where we should and can make that own personal quote-unquote sacrifice of walking away from the negative piece And it's not a hard choice for us to make. We just have to get there because it won't hurt us to make that choice as white people, right? We will not be hurting to walk away from the negative piece. Yes, it is. It will take work and it will take things to be different for us. And we will not be in as high of a societal position as we have been, but we need to create this positive piece so that everyone Everyone gets to experience it, not just us. This quote, I mean, it reminds me of, I'm sure we've all heard that, you know, neutrality helps the oppressor, of course, Mm -hmm. but it definitely reminds me of that. And it's just to hear this quote and to think about down to like every word that it says the relevance and how much it rings true in 2021 is really interesting to me. Like down to like I, when King says, you know, white people constantly say, I agree with you and the goal you seek, but I don't agree with your methods. Mm -hmm. Like we still hear these exact things to this day. And this quote is just, yeah, it's almost just disappointing to hear how incredibly true this quote is because Mm -hmm. to hear the truth in white people still doing this goes back to the truth and why it is the biggest problem and why it is Mm -hmm. one of the biggest problems and why we're still dealing with the circumstances we are today. Yeah, I think it, it it really goes back into, like, this is all of our fight. It is. And so we're asking you, after listening to this, you, I mean white people, so we, white people need to do more. <laughs> we need to basically break up this white moderate majority. We need to, we need to be disruptive in our own white communities um, so that So that another 70 years from now, there's not people saying, wow, this is still the same. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or as a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. 
Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities and in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr. Ending on that beautiful quote, at least we have a little hope for the future that, like Taylor said, in 70 years, hopefully less, <laughs> things will be a lot different than they are right now. A lot better and a lot more equitable for everyone. So happy Black History Month, everyone. We can't wait for what's to come.